first, we start with the Canada-U.S. land border set to reopen next month for travelers from Canada to the United States. Finally, finally, man, this was a long time coming. One of the American politicians who put a lot of pressure on this, a guy named Brian Higgins, New York State Congressman. He's been a guest here on the show in the past talking about this. Here he was reacting to this uh, yesterday. All of us have been admonished for the past 19 months to follow the science, to follow the data, to follow the facts. And when you do that, it leads to one clear and compelling conclusion, and that is to open the border. We are pushing for a November 1 opening of the border to Canadian citizens coming into the United States. Okay, U.S. Congressman Brian Higgins speaking yesterday. Let's discuss now with my guest, Carrie Whaley. Carrie is the co-founder of LetUsReunite.org, and I'm very pleased to welcome him. Carrie, thanks for coming on today. Thanks, Mike, for having me on. Yeah, you back. What can you tell me about Let Us Reunite? This is like a cross-border American-Canadian effort to lobby to get that border open, right? Yes, we founded a year ago as a response to a lot of the work that Canada was doing with their family reunification exemptions. And we've been trying to ask the United States uh, government for travel exemptions to allow families to reunify. Yeah, yeah. Now you're you're on the American side of the border, right? Are you in Washington D.C.? Is that where you're located? I'm just outside Washington D.C. in Silver Spring, Maryland. Right. And this this effort that you guys started here, you got people on both sides of the border working to get the border reopened, right? Right. We yeah. have. Um, well, we work focus entirely on the U.S. government side. There are yeah. groups that focus on Canada, but where we saw a hole was no one was talking with the. Uh, with the United States uh, legislators, and we wanted to make sure that we got trans, uh, trans uh, excuse me, traction with the uh, uh, with the uh, policymakers on the right. U.S. side. How did you feel when you heard that news yesterday? The board looks like the border will be open next month. Well, <laughs> in short, it's about time. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, this is a long time coming. This has been, what, 19 months this border has been shut down. What kind of impact has that had on, you know, you guys are focused on reuniting families. I mean, you know, we're friends, we're neighbors, but we got separated families on both sides of this border, too, right? What's that been like for people? Let Us Reunite is basically a set of stories that's put to action, to political action. And over the last 19 months, we've heard hundreds of heartbreaking stories of couples, parents, children, grandparents, adult caregivers that have all been separated from their loved ones. And it speaks of the loss that comes from that. There's physical, mental, and emotional toll that happens. And, and they keep that hope of eventual unification. The group... The group that was most impacted by the U.S. policy, though, were the individuals and the communities that were located near the border. Right. Speaking to Carrie Whaley, LetUsReunite.org, they've been working for a long time to get that border open. Uh, Carrie, were you personally impacted by that border closure? I was, but I was one of the lucky ones. As I was American and my partner, she lives in Canada. I was able to travel to Canada last November on the extended, extended family exemption that Canada instituted. Um, then, unfortunately or fortunately, I was able to visit in, month with, uh, in March when my partner was hospitalized for two and a half months. However, had the roles been reversed, she would not have been able to visit me 
or care for me because she's immunocompromised and can't risk air travel. And until this announcement, the U.S. hadn't changed their policy since the first day of the pandemic and the closure. Right, right. Why did it take so long for the American government to take action here? Mike, I can't speak for uh, into the perspective of U.S. bureaucracy, and I'm not going to try. But I think there were two main reasons why the closure differed in the U.S. from that of Canada. First, for reasons that defy public health conventional wisdom, we never fully closed the border. America's, Americans were essentially prohibited to enter Canada until August 9th. But on the other side... Um, we allowed open air travel, and you yeah, could travel yeah. for any discre- discretionary reason. So that impact didn't necessarily ap- uh, uh, impact winter travel or travel to Florida. Where it really impacted was those families that live on border towns, and they live on t- border towns so they can be close to their family. And right. suddenly that trip from Sioux Su- Su- St. Marie Ontario to Sault Ste. Marie, uh, Michigan, takes ten and a half hours and over a thousand dollars in airfare, and we we felt that from a public health policy perspective, it just didn't make sense. So we have been trying to first uh, echo those family exemptions that Canada did. And then as our vaccine technology was available and the testing got better, we really started to push for an open discretionary tra- uh, travel policy, which was announced Tuesday. Right. Okay. So now we finally get some uh, some notice that the land border was set to reopen. But there's still a lot of unanswered questions here, right? Like when will, is there a firm date now to, for the border to reopen or is that still up in the air? There is not a firm date. Um, They said early November. uh, Brian Higgins, who you gave a a soundbite of, and and I'll give a shout-out to later, um, said he'd prefer November 1st. I'd prefer November 1st along with him. But so many of the details have just not been fleshed out in the announcement. Um, And we have many questions um, on how that's going to work. Yeah, I'm sure you do. Like, what about the proof of vaccination? How is that going to work? Like, this will be for fully vaccinated travelers allowed to cross the border into the United States. But the Americans, the American government, so they will accept the AstraZeneca vaccine, I understand, right? Even though it's not approved for use in the United States, correct? They will accept that. The question yeah. will be, one of our big questions is mixed dosing. Yeah. That was not addressed in the announcement. We certainly want to see that. The other thing you have to remember is there's not a lot of infrastructure on how to prove vaccination. There's not even a travel app that's been used like the Arrival Can app was used in um, Canada. So a lot of this is going to be done at the gate looking at paper physical uh, vaccination cards. we would love to see, I think Canada had a leg up that they had an electronic way to file this as soon as they made the announcement. They merely modified their app. Uh, the U.S. doesn't have an app. So a lot of this stuff is going to be, be, you know, taking your paperwork and showing it to the gate agent. That may not be a very smooth policy.
Yeah, how about how about children that are too young to be vaccinated? They covered here. That's that's our other big concern moving forward. Is is the the people that can't be vaccinated, particularly the children. Um, the announcement didn't speak to that, but we're about having families reunite. Kids need to see their grandparents and parents. As someone who's a grandparent, I want to see my grandkids. I want them to be able to visit. We've got to have exemptions for those children and have safe alternatives if they're testing-based, um, other ways to improve prove safety, to encourage that safety, but at the same time, allow families to reunite. All right, welcome back to the show as we continue talking about the Canada-U.S. land border reopening, hopefully next month. My guest, Carrie Whaley, lettustoreunite.org. Phone lines are open, star 9898 in your cell. Daryl in Coquitlam. Hi, Daryl. Hi, thanks for taking my call. I just uh, want some feedback from your guest that... I believe that what's happened with the Canada-U.S. border, first of all, is that the Americans, due to treaty obligations, if you noticed yesterday, said that they will open the border between Canada, the United States, and also the land border with Mexico. Mexico right. has got a vaccination rate of about 45% compared to Canada's 80%. Yeah. Also, if we just isolate British Columbia and Washington State, and, uh, we, of course, you can confirm this with Keith Baldry. Their infection rate, hospitalizations, and deaths per 100,000 are far greater than British Columbia's. And, yes, my daughter and her children live in Florida, and I, I will not go for until maybe 2023. So, so do I you, just like feedback from your guests. So what, do you think the border should stay sh- closed? No, I don't think that they should close, oh. but, but I, I think that they have to uh, uh, allow entry in, in a very measured way. Okay. Canada per hundred thousand. Look at the deaths per population of the United States pushing eight hundred thousand compared to Canada, not even at thirty. That doesn't okay. make sense. Okay, Carrie, thanks for the call. Well, I, I don't know. I think they are doing it in a measured way, Carrie, but you're thought maybe too measured from you guys have been fighting so long on this, but what do you think? I think I think that possibly was too measured on the uh particularly on the Canadian side, we had long argued because of those good vaccination rates rates in Canada that this be more of an incremental policy. I come from the tech world and the banking world, and you always have pilots, alpha tests, beta tests, and you try to open everything incrementally. I think the trick here was that both Canada and Mexico borders were closed by the same executive order, so from a legal standpoint, they chose to open them at the same time. Okay. Um, because they're closing, because they're allowing only vaccinated and, you know, we still don't know the details of where testing is going to come in. The trick is to make sure that the infection rates don't go up. And from someone yeah. who's had a hospitalized partner, I want to make sure that those uh, beds in ICU and trauma are safe for the people that need them rather than just for COVID case because we're not policing the pandemic properly. Let's go to Joseph on the line calling from Ottawa. Hi, Joseph. Hi, how are you? I'm good. Go ahead. Yeah, uh, I want to thank Mr. Whalen for all the work he did on this, um, you know, uh, and particularly, you know, pushing uh, with various politicians uh, and reps in the U.S. on opening the border. Uh, my question to him is, I have two questions, actually. The, uh, you know, having spoken himself to many American politicians on the issue, 
what were uh, the interactions like, uh, yeah. you know, his, his experience? What was it like? My second question is, you know, uh, there's four or five million Canadians uh, that have mixed doses like Pfizer and Moderna. And, and you know, I, I know they, they've said the, the U.S., the CDC, I think, will accept AstraZeneca. But, like, they haven't given a clear answer on the, you know, if you got one Pfizer, one Moderna, one, you know. Okay, uh, okay, I, I thank, okay. What, thank you for the call. Kerry. Okay, first on the political landscape, a lot is made up, uh, made about U.S.'s very divided, divisive, political, partisan landscape. I can be the first to tell you that our support from the offices was bipartisan in nature. Um, You've already highlighted Brian Higgins. He was absolutely uh, our champion on this. He's on the Democratic side. Uh, Someone else I would mention from from more your area of the country is Susan Del Benny, also yeah. very much of a champion on this um, Democrat. Chris Jacobs, also from Buffalo, um, a Republican, was very, very active in this, and, and we count them all as friends. I, I would say there were harsh questions asked of uh, Secretary Mayorkas by uh, Senator Sheehan and by Gary Peters and by uh, Maggie Hassan. And all those letters, we had almost 100 letters of support from representatives, Republican, Democrat. We, um, we had ears of both House oversight, both House and Senate oversight committees. So the okay. support was very strong. It just okay. Okay, we got 30, we got, we got 30 seconds, Kerry. Uh, I, I think you had a question there in the mixed dose. You already talked about that earlier. You, you believe they should, the, the United States should allow, should recognize the mixed doses, right? I'm seeing reports even recently that mixed dosing may be stronger. Oh, well, yeah. Yeah, no, they should, so they should let, that's they certainly sh- an area that they have to address and they have to look at. Kerry, thank you for coming on today. Thank you so much, Mike, for having me. All right. Welcome back to the show. Let's talk about a guaranteed basic income in Canada now. The House of Commons set to get back down to business this fall. Will this one pop up on the agenda? A guaranteed basic income in Canada. A guaranteed income despite your work status, whether you're working or not, you'd receive a guaranteed livable income. This is an idea that has been kicked around in our country for a while now, and it's got some support. Federal NDP leader Jugmeet Singh has expressed some interest and support in this. At the recent federal liberal policy convention, uh, delegates also endorsed this idea that the success of the CERB program shows that maybe we should move to a guaranteed basic income for seniors, low-income Canadians, guarantee their standard of living regardless of working status was the wording of the resolution. Lots of support for this idea around the world, too. Have a listen to this here now. Here's a billionaire Richard Branson uh, talking about this idea with a CNN reporter, Christine Romans. Have a listen to this basic minimum earnings for everybody so that every there's nobody that is having to sleep on the street so guaranteed basic income or universal basic income you hundred percent think that's really important well there are people in this country who call that a nanny state you know um some people will will call it that but i think that uh it will come about one day and i think out of necessity out of necessity 
Okay, let's discuss now what a great panel we've got for you. Jim Stanford is on the line. Jim is an economist with the Center for Future Work, and I'm very pleased to welcome him back. Hi, Jim. Hello, Mike. Hi, thanks a lot for coming on. Tasha Carrot. Thank you, Jim. Also on the line is Tasha Carrot, and Tasha is a political columnist, a lecturer at the Max Bell School of Public Policy at McGill. She is a lead with Navigator, which is a large public relations firm. And I encourage you to check out her column on this one in the uh, National Post, which I just tweeted out for you. You'll find it there. Tasha, thank you for coming on today. Oh, my pleasure. Nice to be on with Jim again. Nice to see you. Sure is, Tasha. Hi. Okay, Jim, let me go to you first. Universal basic income. You like this idea, right? You think this could work? Well, I think the goal is very noble. The idea is that everyone in a country as rich as Canada shouldn't have to worry about putting food on the table and a roof over their heads. How we get there is a big question. We already have something like it for certain groups of people. For example, we have a basic income system for people over 65 through the old age, uh, old age security pension and the guaranteed income supplement. We also have something like it for families with kids. The Canada Child Tax Benefit System has really expanded and helped to eliminate poverty uh, among families, again, regardless of the employment status of, uh, uh, of people. So I think there's ways to kind of get at it without it being a magic bullet that, that applies to everyone all at the same time. But uh, I certainly think the goal is, is a good one. Okay, Tasha, your thoughts. Well, it's interesting Jim mentions those two because that's exactly um, the reason that a UBI or a guaranteed basic income is actually not a good idea because it is it spreads the wealth, so to speak, to a very broad base and people who don't necessarily need that support. Um, when you look at the situation of seniors, for example, yes, uh, that is a, that's also a, defi- a benefit program, a defined benefit program, but a program to which people have paid. It also has a huge unfunded liability. Um, which, uh, you know, is another question entirely. If you start funding this for the entire population, regardless, I mean, Richard Branson would technically be eligible as well because yeah. it would be paid to everyone. So, but just to say, the, the, um, the uh, PBO uh, in Canada uh, has estimated the cost of this would be up to $197 billion a year by 2025. Wow. So it is, it's not an efficient way. If you want to target the money to the people who need it, that's what we do now. So that's why I think a program, a catch-all program like the UBI doesn't really make sense. What, what do you think, Tasha, when you compare the idea for a universal basic income and you compare that to what Canada has gone through here with the CERB and some of the mm-hmm. other uh, pandemic relief measures brought in by the federal government? This was the focus of your op-ed in the National Post. What do you think about like Canada's experience with the CERB? Is that, should that be a warning that universal basic income is a bad idea? Well, actually, yes. And, you know, it's kind of, it's been a bit of an uncontrolled experiment. And I think the early days of the pandemic, no question, it made sense because we didn't know what jobs could be safely performed. We didn't know what COVID was really all about. So keeping people out of the labor force was something we did for health reasons. The problem is that we've seen since then a really big shortage of labor, uh, labor supply in many areas. Um, you know, hospitality is one sector. There are restaurants that say literally they cannot find people to work. You know, they, yeah. they thought they'd close because of the pandemic. Now they're closing because they can't find workers. Agriculture, the same. Uh, a lot of people made choices or are still making choices based on the availability of pandemic aid. They wouldn't have made otherwise. And you might say, well, that's great. Look, they could do that. But the point is that uh, the labor market, there's a disconnect between what they may want to do and are able to do and what the labor market needs. So you're creating a situation where people are basically disincentivized to take the jobs that are there. 
that right. is a problem. And uh, it's, it's something that's, like I said, also a very costly problem because, it, you know, if we did this for everybody, the implications would be even bigger. Jim Stanford. Well, I think there's a bit of mythology about the, the CERB uh, on, on a couple of scores. Uh, first of all, the CERB was not a guaranteed basic income. Uh, it did apply to certain people in certain circumstances. You had to prove that you were uh, working, not just as an employee. They also quite appropriately said if you were working as a contractor or self-employed or a gig worker and you made at least $5,000 in the previous year and you lost your work because of COVID, that was a, a hoop you had to jump through then you could get the CERB. So it was not unconditional. It was only paid to people who had had been, had been working and lost work. The level of the CERB, $2,000 a month, was uh, in some ways generous compared to previous welfare payments and even EI payments in Canada. Our previous EI system was so full of holes, the government knew that most Canadians who needed it wouldn't qualify. So that's why they came in with the CERB. Now, the CERB itself has been gone for a year, but employers are still blaming CERB for the fact that they can't find workers. But even that's a myth, Mike. Uh, there are more Canadians working today than were working before the pandemic. We actually just last week, Statistics Canada reported, we've regained the employment peak we had before the pandemic. We're one of the first countries in the world to do that. So it's not that Canadians aren't working that is the problem for restaurateurs and farmers. It's that they're not working in those industries. And that's well, why the problem we see is low wages and lousy conditions well, in restaurants and farms, is, is not there the al- fact that Canadians are sitting home collecting CERB. Well, is there also, though, Jim, some evidence that a lot of CERB money went to people who didn't necessarily need it? I mean, there's been some studies of like younger Canadians, for example, who were still living at home with their parents in, in dual high-income homes, they didn't need the CERB, and, and they got millions of dollars to sit at home. Well, I mean, there's a, there's a, couple, of things, uh, a couple of things there. First of all, um, it's very hard to try to discriminate between who really needs it and who doesn't. Uh, when you're in a national health emergency and you're trying to encourage people to stay home. That was the point of it, right? We didn't want people to have an incentive to go to work when they could spread the disease or catch the disease. Uh, so they moved quickly, and they had a, a certainly a, you know, a broad brush uh, with this program. And the fact that it yeah. got out so quick and it was generous is one of the things that helped us avoid a, an all-out depression uh, uh, during that time. Um, so, you know, the fact that some people, again, made more on CERB than they did in their lousy, insecure, part-time, low-wage jobs, to me, doesn't show there's a problem with the CERB. It shows there's a problem with those jobs. Okay, Tasha, well, your thoughts? I will disagree, and I'll take the student example. And I know uh, of personal regard or personal relationship, uh, students who did this and took CERB when um, their part-time job, as you said, would have been was canceled, um, but who had options for support that that they did not rely on that to make ends meet. They had options of parents or other people who would be able to to give them the wherewithal to be perfectly fine. Um, whereas some people lost, you know, their jobs that were their support, and this is why. CERB to me is sort of the bellwether here for why a UBI is not good because it treats everyone the same. Just because you can't work doesn't mean you're in the same position. And the students are an example of that. The other thing is, too, CERB is not gone. Uh, the Canada Recovery Benefit took its place. And yes, it's less money and it's $300 now a week as opposed to the very generous, the 2000 that you cited, Jim. But, you know, the, the, that is still having an effect. And if you go to regions of the country, this is another issue. Um, you know, rural Ontario, for example, uh, go there and I, you'll find every contractor you speak to will say the same thing. 
people don't want to work anymore because they can't. They only yeah. want to work a couple of days here or there to, under the table and collect the CERB. Tasha, I've heard that argument from low-wage employers age, so. since I became an economist. People don't want to work. They're too lazy. There's too much easy money from the it's government. It's not about laziness. Same, it's about efficient choices. same employers made those complaints <laughs> long before the pandemic. Restaurants were complaining. Farmers were complaining. Contractors were complaining because they faced the problem of trying to recruit labor and do it cheaply. And I, in some ways, sympathize with them, but I say get with the program. The labor market is saying, not that people aren't working, the labor market is saying you've got to pay people better to come and do the job you want them to do and stop blaming government for that okay. and start looking at your own practices. All right, welcome back as we continue our universal basic income uh, debate. Jim Stanford, Tasha Carradine are on the line. I've had tons of phone calls here. Dave in Vancouver. Hi, Dave. Go ahead. Uh, good morning, everybody. Hey, I'm an employer. I employ 15 plus people and I find it very difficult to find people to want to work when I'm paying up to like 25 bucks an hour to come work for me. And everybody keeps telling me that um, they're collecting CERB, they're collecting, you know, unemployment, nobody wants to work, we got to work outside. And I just find that um, it's very difficult to find people anywhere to work now because of the government's giving them too much money. And you want to give them uh, an income every month or whatever you guys are talking about to, you know, make everybody even. Well, the only way I learned is get out there and get a job and pay your own bills and don't have the government, you know, pay for your, um, how would you call okay. it, you know, being here. Yeah, I think I get your point. Jim, your thoughts? Well, uh, I mean, the hard evidence, Mike, uh, is that people are working. So this urban myth that people aren't working because there's too much easy government money is not verified by the statistics that show there are more Canadians working now than were working before COVID hit. And the statistics on the, on the CERB doesn't exist anymore, as Tasha pointed out. We have something smaller called the Canada Recovery Benefit. Most, uh, most people have been cut off that because it was time limited, and the number of people on that today uh, is very small in the grand scheme of things. So there are challenges finding workers, uh, and the yeah. pandemic hasn't hurt, helped, but people are working. That's the Tasha, reality. So I don't Tasha. think it's credible to blame yeah. CERB. I got to say, Dave's not alone. I mean, 55% of businesses, small and medium-sized businesses that were surveyed by the Business Development Bank of Canada said that uh, they are struggling to find workers. And it is not, you know, uh, what you alluded to, Jim, that, you know, people are lazy or whatnot. It's not that at all. It's that when you have other choices, it's actually very rational. It's very Adam Smith. It's like, I'm going to make the rational choice. If I can get money over here and not have to work or be able to do other things, maybe work less, why wouldn't I make that choice? So you're giving people that option. In Ontario, they had a pilot project. It ran for two years. The government shut it down because they said they found from the, the managers and, and the, uh, the people who were administering the program that it wasn't helping people transition back to work or to participate in the economy. No, that is not why it was shut down, Tasha. I was involved in that project. It was shut down because the government wanted to send a political signal. There were no results from it yet, that's and the government has found no results. So That's, that's, that's your interpretation of it. They yeah. No, I was involved in the, in the advisory committee, and there were no results. There was no evidence from it yet. And then people who were involved in the, in the committee, who'd been brought in to try the experiment, organized their lives around it, and then got cut off. So many of them sued the government for canceling that pilot. It was just to okay. learn. That's all it was. Okay, let's squeeze another call in here. Joyce on the line calling from Chase. Hi, Joyce. Go ahead. Hi. I don't think that the government should give them a, a guaranteed income. I mean, we already got 
basically a guaranteed income. How many people are on welfare? How many people are getting unemployment? Like, we don't need to keep supporting these people. Make them get a damn job. Okay, do you think the Tasha, let me go to you on that. I mean, do you think that the social the social safety net we have in place right now is is adequate? Well, the social safety net, I I mean, it's never going to be perfect. And there are always, you know, there were situations in Ontario to 20 years ago where, you know, there was a lot more use of welfare that was cut back. Workfare was implemented. I mean, Jim and I can have a debate on that. But the point is that from time to time, things get reviewed. The child care supports that Jim mentioned earlier are an example also why this you know, minimum income is not a good idea because the idea is that you you do. There are groups that, if you want them to participate fully in society, may need more assistance at certain times than others, and that changes over time. So, young families, yeah, uh, the idea is right now it's extremely difficult to be able to participate if you don't have childcare. So, the government is putting money towards that. But that doesn't mean that, you know, a perfectly able-bodied young person who just graduated university, yeah, it's, if they have to work at Starbucks and they don't want to work at Starbucks, and I, I get that, but the point is uh, all of us have done those jobs. I'll just say it. All of us have done the minimum wage, you know, student, low-paying, or other jobs because we didn't have that fallback. And it doesn't mean it's your career path, but it, it does. work has a value. In, work intrinsically has a value. Okay. And one of the things that the message UBI sends is that it, it actually doesn't. Okay, Jim, we just got a minute left here. Go ahead. I don't disagree with Tasha that the focus should be on people who need it the most. Um, and we have an opportunity to do that in Canada. The federal government's looking at a new disability um, support payment that would also be very similar to a guaranteed basic income format for people with disabilities. So, I, you know, I think this whole idea of uh, everybody not having to work, just collect money is, is a bit of a non-starter for all kinds of reasons. But different ways that we can improve the holes in the current safety net and this basic income for people with disabilities would be a great step forward. Okay. I think those are more promising. Okay, I'll give 20 seconds there, Tasha. You can wrap up there. Well, again, that is a targeted support, and that's why yeah. UBI, the concept of universal basic income, is not the way to go. Um, okay. Because you're not going to replace that patchwork either. Like, it's not going to happen. just going to be on top of it. All right, welcome back to the show. Let's talk about BC's booming film and TV industry here. Now, it's been chugging along pretty well, even during the pandemic, and it's been a real bright spot for the BC economy over the years. Look what's going on south of the border now. Oh, it's possible strike here. A strike by U.S. film and TV crews. Thousands of workers set to walk off the job potentially next week. How will that affect the industry on our side of the border here in British Columbia? Let's discuss now with my guest, Phil Clapwick. Phil is the business representative here in B.C. for the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees. Hi, Phil. Thanks for coming on. Hi, Mike. Thanks for having me. Thank you for being here. So your union, it's the same union, right, that's that's going on strike in the United States, but you guys are a different local, I imagine, right? That's correct. Uh, yeah. In uh, It's part of a large international, um, so about 125, 127-year history. Um, there are uh, about 26 locals in the U.S. that are involved in the negotiations that uh, that uh, strike action has been has been called for. Okay, and we're not part of that uh, right. that coalition. Right. So, so unionized TV and film workers here in BC, they would not be going on strike as well. well 
Well, in British Columbia, we're uh, subject to different uh, labor laws, of course, and uh, we have our own set of negotiations with the very same employers. Um, so it's a, it's a complicated situation. And, and here in British Columbia, we've been negotiating with the employers since uh, February. So we're still involved in those negotiations, and, and those talks are ongoing. How many people work in this business in B.C.? Oh, gosh, it's, uh, I think, us estimated at over 45,000 people overall, yeah. but that includes a, a lot of uh, animation and visual effects workers, too. Uh, I represent 10,000 workers uh, in crafts that are considered below the line, technicians that are working as, uh, uh, as hair artists, uh, makeup artists, uh, construction workers, production office workers, that sort of thing. Right. Um, and we also have about 5,000 permittees who have not made their way into membership yet, so uh, the people I represent is about 15,000 strong. Wow, that's amazing. It's a big business, and I think it's been great for the, the BC economy. Uh, these jobs are, are they're in, really interesting jobs. I knew a guy who was a carpenter, worked on some movie sets, and, and he loved it. But, uh, man, did he work hard. I mean, he worked long hours. Like, What are these jobs like in terms of the working conditions? Well, some of them actually do have excessive, excessively long hours, and it's all tied to um, actor availability and, and things like that. So if we're doing a, a, a prosthetics makeup uh, heavy show where, where makeup has to be applied hours uh, prior to the shoot, that can extend that makeup artist day to 15, 16 hours every single day. Um, and it's, it's, really, it's really trying on, on a lot of the people. Yeah. The standard is is twelve hour days for um, for the shooting crew. However, so when we look at the numbers, it's um, it's pretty standard a twelve hour day. The problem and the difficulty we face now is that a lot of our shooting locations are moving further and further out in the valley, and and our studios are being set up in Langley. So commute times are factoring in where a twelve hour day used to be no problem, but now you have an hour of an hour's drive on either side, and it it's it's very tiring. Right. Speaking of Phil Clapwick, he's with the union, represents uh, BC TV and film workers. When you take a look at the issues around this potential strike in the United States, Phil, what are the issues there? Is work Are working hours, is that one of the issues on the table there? Uh, I believe so. Um, they've cited a lot of uh, worker health and safety issues and, and getting proper rest and proper meal breaks and, and things like that. Um, and, you know, those issues are the same issues that we face all across the board. And, and we all try to fight for uh, the safety and the health and safety of our crews right. um, all the time. It's, it's constant. Um, but we've, we've solved some of those problems here uh, already. Like, for example, one of the issues that they face in the States is weekend turnaround, the, the amount of rest period you have on your weekend. And in British Columbia, we have a standard 50-hour uh, weekend turnaround. And, I mean, that's not necessarily great for a life balance, but it it is something we constantly try to, to work on. Right. So if this strike does happen on the U.S. side of the border next week, will that impact B.C. at all? Well, there are workers from the U.S.-based uh, locals that are working in British Columbia on work permits. And, and so those, those workers would be expected to withhold their services on those productions. Um, and our members would, would more than likely uh, be respecting that work as struck work and would not be filling oh. those positions. Oh. So we're talking about a handful of, of employees uh, out of okay. the 15,000 people that I said that were working. It's looking like we have about 10 productions and less than 20 workers who would be in this situation. Oh, okay. So it may have a, it'll have some impact, but limited, sounds like. 
And yeah, we really, you know, they're still at the table and we really don't know the ramifications until actually Monday rolls around. And we're hoping that a strike is avoided um, because, you know, nobody actually ever wants to go on strike. We want to continue talking. We want to have good faith negotiations and resolve our differences at the table. If, If they do go on strike in the United States next week, could that potentially trigger a surge of work here on our side of the border? Like, could you see some production say, okay, we're shut down from a strike. Let's go up to British Columbia and keep shooting up there. Well, you know, I think that they'd uh, find a lot of union solidarity and, uh, and a lot of our mm. members would, uh, would probably choose not to work on those shows. I think they'd have a hard time finding the crew that would want to work on a show that relocated uh, to avoid uh, uh, job action. Interesting. So you mean like, okay, if you got like a struck company down there, a struck production, they come here, the, the, the BC workers that you represent say, no way, I'm not working. I'm not working for you. Everybody has the freedom of choice of who they, they want to work for. And there's yeah. no necessarily, uh, there's not necessarily an obligation to provide your services on, on, yeah. on production. So it, once, a, once a show is known that it's relocated to avoid actually uh, dealing with, uh, with the international, boy, that'd be a hard spot to fill those those jobs oh interesting and, and would that be the official position of the union like would the union be telling your people don't don't work for this this production uh i i'm not really sure i can comment on that at this point the uh, the, the eventuality of the uh, uh of the situation is uh is you know emerging on a day-by-day basis so we'll, yeah. we'll be we'll be issuing a statement as as we get closer if 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 it's yeah. necessary uh, to take action Right. How's this industry been doing during COVID? It seems like it's uh, it's chugged along pretty well here. Well, you know that's a testament to the uh, to the, the the dedication of the workers in this industry. We really, you know, bared down at the uh, at the outset of COVID and figured a way to come back stronger to do our jobs better uh, while we had the uh, the restrictions of COVID in place. And in fact, uh, BC was one of the first jurisdictions in North America to return to uh, film work. And uh, we were able to, to get back in place because we, we have dedicated members who, who really took it seriously and, and fought mm. the, uh, the rigors of, of COVID. And we came back strong. And I, I tell you, it told to me that we have one of the lowest uh, transmission uh, incidence rates in uh, all of the industries. And, and uh, that's, uh, again, it's, it's just because the workers actually uh, went the extra distance and, and respected the, the the regimens and the protocols right. we put in place. Right. Have you had any productions actually shut down because of COVID outbreaks? Uh, early on, we had a couple that went down for, for quite a, a few days, but yeah. the norm now is that, uh, you know, uh, when, when somebody is, is tested positive for COVID-19, uh, they're taken out of the system. Those that are impacted get tested. Uh, we sanitize the area. We get back to work. Uh, right away. So shows aren't really shutting down the way that uh, you'd think. Right. Um, there have been a few few outbreaks which uh, delayed production on a, a few shows by, by several days, but it's not rampant, that's for sure. I guess there's a perception that the jobs in this industry are, I guess, kind of glamorous in a way. I remember talking to my buddy who worked on some film and TV shows in Vancouver, and he, he told some great stories about some of the actors that he worked with, and we were all kind of starstruck. Yeah. But but I know it's difficult work. Like for people, like are you guys hiring? Like are they hiring in this business? And are they good jobs? They pay well. 
Yeah, you know, uh, we're constantly looking for people with uh, skill sets that are uh, uh, from uh, correlative industries. You know, like people that can weld, we're uh, in great demand. People that uh, are uh, skilled hairstylists or makeup artists or uh, uh, even like greens people or, you know, all sorts of uh, jobs are available. And, and they're good, uh, good paying uh, middle, uh, middle class jobs. And, uh, and with the union protections, you know, it's, it's a great place to work. And I got to say, you know, I've, I, I was a worker in this industry for 25 years before uh, becoming the business rep. And, and I've worked with some of the most talented and uh, creative people in the world. And, and uh, a lot of those people are from B.C. So we have people that start their, their uh, careers right here in British Columbia and then travel the world uh, as filmmakers. And uh, it's, a real, it's a real growth industry. And we're always looking for people. Okay, it's very interesting. Phil, thank you for coming on to talk about it today. appreciate it. Oh, you're welcome. Thanks very much. Oh. All right, welcome back. Let's talk about the BC restaurant industry. They've been hit hard during this pandemic, and all restaurants have suffered here during COVID-19, whether they're big or small or fancy or a greasy spoon. It doesn't matter. Like All these restaurants have really struggled. But check out this headline in the Globe and Mail today. Canada's high-end restaurants struggle to survive fine dining high-end restaurants it appears they may have suffered the most here during the pandemic let's discuss that now with my guest ian tostenson ceo of the bc restaurant association and i'm pleased to welcome him back hi ian (laughs) i'm laughing mike greasy spoon i haven't heard that for a long time (laughs) i I love a good greasy spoon myself you know i know right Uh, um Well, you know, I think that report from the Globe and Mail is a little different in B.C. You know, uh, fine dining restaurants. So let me see if I can define what that is. Um, Generally, uh, if you look at, say, uh, so there's a couple different segments of restaurants. So let's say quick service. Mm -hmm. Their average check that you would spend there is close to $6. And then you go to the casual um, categories you could have family and upscale casual and and that will range anywhere from 10 to 18 sometimes a bit higher but fine dining is the average check and these are all numbers i'll give credit to restaurants canada um, and thank you for the research they do uh, is around 43 dollars so you can see the jump at, at that at that price point right so what we saw prior to the pandemic was you know a little bit of pe- people are being very conscious about the economy and and their pocketbooks, and they went, okay, so that, no, that was difficult then for fine dining, and we've got some awesome fine dining restaurants in Vancouver, I mean, there's a list, is, you know, there's 20 or 30 I could think of offhand, but they, um, it was hard for them, and then, you know, we had the same issues of labor shortages, well, the pandemic hit, and unfortunately for fine dining is that, as the owner of High said yesterday, our food doesn't travel well, we skip the dishes, and it's so true. Because the definition of a fine dining restaurant is premium service, premium decor, premium ingredients, uh, premium food, uh, premium wine list. Everything is so premium, and you can't you can't obviously duplicate that um, during a pandemic in your home. So they really had a hard time, and that was you know a lot of things that happened where wage subsidies and the rent subsidies really went to help those guys get through this. Now. Um, it's unbelievable. So this is in contrast to what the Global Mail is saying, is that, you know, I've phoned, you know, a whole bunch of uh, fine dining restaurants in Vancouver, and even though there's no tourism, even though that 
the offices are empty here and even in Victoria, um, they're doing really well because they become destination restaurants. People have got money in the bank because they didn't go on vacations right. and they're, they're needing to get out and socialize. This is one of the number one reasons through Restaurants Canada on their research is why do people want to go out? They need to socialize and reconnect and they, and they want to get out and not do dishes and they, they, they want to clean up. They want to just get out there and be treated. We're seeing restaurants in Vancouver. Um, one restaurant group told me yesterday, this is, they're doing better now than they ever have. And because, you know, it's just because of the money we have in the banks and the fact that we've missed that experience so much that, um, the, you know, con- in contrast to Globe Mail, uh, we seem to be doing very well at that level here. Okay, you mentioned that when, when people think about high-end, fancy restaurants, premium re- quality restaurants in Vancouver, you mentioned that, you know, you could probably think of like 20 that leap to mind for you in Vancouver. Like, what would be at the top of the list at the risk of singling some out and leaving, leaving some others out? I'll throw a whole bunch of black and blue, oh. keg, bishops, five sales, blue water, Macu, uh, Giordano, uh, Ancora, Chiapinos, Gotham's. Joe Forte's Seasons of the Park, St. Lawrence, there's, you know, and published. There's about 18 or 20 of them right there. Yeah, I'm sure those all those places are, are great. And when we take a look at, Ian, at, let's talk about sales figures, right? Now, prior to the pandemic, what kind of sales would a restaurant like that or, or any restaurant typically be doing before this whole thing hit? It's hard to say. Um, they could be... Eight to twelve million dollars in sales, and wow. they probably went to a fraction of that during the pandemic. Wow! It sounds like a lot, but you know you got to consider what I said about that forty-three dollars per person. I mean, that's an average. People spend more. Yeah. I find when we go out right now, we'll stretch it and just go. What you know? What spend another twenty-five dollars a bottle of wine? Who cares? Because you want to have that experience, and so. Um, but they're also paying really high rents because they're in high visible places and um, they're paying a lot of money for their ingredients. So, you know, it's premium ingredients. You know, they're paying a lot for their uh, acquisition on alcohol, their wine lists. Um, the um, Chia Pinos, uh, Pino has about $4 million in his wine list inventory to serve his guests. He, he, it's one of the, the best wine libraries around, but that costs a lot of money to have that. But then it also translates into the ultimate experience for if you and I went in there, it's pretty much we can drink a bottle of wine of anything we want. So it's really incredible. And it's not to take away from the casual, the family. I mean, restaurants are so segmented that they, they cover every aspect of our life, whether we want to drive it through or go have a quick lunch at you know an Earl's or a Cactus or a family at the White Spot. What all? It, it's all there. Or it's, especially ramen restaurant, right? There's a whole bunch of that in this in the city too. So it's right. a, it's incredibly amazing mosaic uh, of of industry. Uh, it's amazing this this business. Uh, so many of these places have struggled to hang on, and a lot of them have have survived. I tip my hat to them. Uh, some have gone under though, right? Like, do you know? Do you have any idea of how many restaurants have actually failed and gone out of business yeah. during the pandemic? Mainly independent restaurants, small. Um, you know, we, we, we sort of think, you know, 10 to 20% on a base of 15. So we may have lost a couple of thousand restaurants who are undercapitalized people wanting to just, they just gave up. They said, you know what, I, I'm too tired to do this. And they retired early. 
their leases came up. They didn't want to renew it. I mean, it's been a tough grind. Um, I think that we bottomed, and I think we're on the way back. I think the vaccination card has put so much confidence back into the system here that the the owners know that they're not going to be closed. I mean, our vaccination rates are getting... So all those signals where we were a year ago is we were questioning whether or not we could even have a party of six for a, a Christmas lunch because of the uh, the regulations. And so we're, we're on our way back. The, the industry was off about 30% uh, or more during the pandemic, but it's, it's forecast to grow 16 and then and another 25 to 30% after that. So as someone said this morning, it's the roaring 20s, uh, you know, assuming that all things being equal and we continue on this track of progress. Um, the future is going to start looking pretty bright for, for you know, some of got, for, for some ahead. of the for some of the restaurants Ian that may be on the margins and, and struggling um, are, are some of them looking to, to change their their business model like somehow lower their input costs uh, so they can hang in there like I, I take your point that this article in the Globe and Mail doesn't seem to reflect the overall situation in British Columbia although I, I know it was uh, Vidge's restaurant in BC famous famous fancy restaurant was is featured prominently in in the article like you know yeah. are are some of these places looking at their business model and saying wow we've got to do something change the way we're operating or is it just business as yeah, usual them, yeah and Vidges is an, a great example i mean you know Vidges, you, you need to go there and he's been and unfortunately you know the food is so awesome and but he's been you know, Vidge has been, uh, they've been hampered because of the capacity restrictions and the closures. And so that's really in wreck of their business. But a lot of businesses uh, have uh, probably added on more. So they've done meal kits. They've done, uh, they've done catering. They have done um, sending a chef to people's homes. So, um, and of course, you know, even the whole industry has embraced, and it's about 35% of our sales now before it was less than 20 of uh, takeout and delivery and takeout and delivery. Now you can uh, order alcohol. So there's been a lot of innovation there. Um, and there's also been, excuse me, a lot of innovation on patios. So patios, patios are going to become a permanent picture and growing. Okay. Takeout and delivery is going to stay because we're always going to, you know, have that experience that we never knew we could have before. And then in-store dining. So you're going to probably see a trend that, uh, you know, restaurants will try to, to your point, Michael, Michael is one of the things they will try to do is to try to, um, to reduce their, their overall costs and their physical yeah. plants. You're going to see smaller restaurants in the future, but more efficient to be able to handle takeout, in-store dining, and also patios.